My name is Justin Lecluder, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Joan Micklin Silver. Well, she is a pioneering female filmmaker, a highly important independent filmmaker, and she's probably best known to lay moviegoers as the director of a little movie called Crossing Delancey. Why do I know the name of that movie? Like, it wasn't a mega hit, was it? No, and I don't know, whenever I'm in New York and I'm on Delancey Street, every single time I think of Crossing Delancey, and I don't know how that that knowledge uh penetrated my skull but but there it is there's got to be like a sitcom or something like that that made a joke about it and that's why every one of our generation remembers it so vividly anyway joan micklin silver passed away on new year's eve in fact at the age of 85 and i didn't really know her work i don't think justin did either all that well um although i know from her her passing that she meant a lot to a lot of people so uh, we wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into her work and i gotta tell you justin just before we um, lead off this is an example of one of those episodes that's hard for me really i don't think it's hard at all for me well i'll tell you why because first of all i went into this week knowing nothing about joan micklin silver so i don't have any relationship with her work (laughs) wait i should point out oh wait we're doing a women filmmaker all right we gotta start the episode by saying that it's gonna be hard for us (laughs) i've seen four of her movies now i think they're probably the four most popular ones i liked them all i i still don't feel um a strong affinity with the work and a lot of that i think comes from just not having lived with it for very long so you know the challenge of an episode like this is like you kind of have to get yourself into the headspace of someone who does have a strong affinity with the work to understand it more but you know invariably when we talk about these filmmakers i always leave with a greater appreciation of them i don't know uh, what are your preliminary thoughts i think that what's interesting about silver from the get-go is that she makes movies that are so small and intimate but also so personal i think the difficult thing of a new person coming to them is that none of them are showy none of them will go like look, this is the reason that you should like this movie. I would argue, though, that Chilly Scenes of Winter, which is the first movie that I saw of hers, it does have enough of a hook and stand out from its ilk that it did give me a different perspective. Like, oh, okay, so this is what she's trying to do. Low-key kind of deconstructions of these kind of romance narratives. And you kind of see that throughout her filmography, especially her early theatrical films. In two of her most important movies, at least, maybe in some of the other ones as well, but in Hester Street and Crossing Delancey, she's very interested in issues of cultural identity, specifically the Jewish cultural identity and how one's relationship with that identity evolves as one navigates class hierarchies and yeah you mentioned that the movies aren't showy there's a there's an unfussiness to them even in a movie like hester street which is so textured so detailed so lived in in its depiction of the uh, jewish life in new york city in the late 19th century um it's also a movie that's like constantly shot in these kind of like static medium shots and it's a very claustrophobic movie it's a movie of apartments and alleyways and you like like new york could just be one street in that film it's a miniature to give a little bit of biography to silver before we get to hester street she's gone on record saying she always wanted to be a filmmaker but she was a woman so no one would give her any chances to do so and the only way she got up to that theatrical level is that she shot a bunch of educational shorts and she did one on jewish life And that led into 
doing Hester Street. Well, Hester Street was her first feature film. It came out in 1975 when she was 40 years old, which is pretty late to be making your first feature film. It was made independently on a low budget, something like $350,000 or so on a 34-day schedule, which I guess was considered a short schedule at the time. It sounds actually kind of luxurious for an independent film now. Any action filmmaker is like, boy, I would love to get 34 days. But we should say that this film doesn't really look like it costs $250,000 considering it's a period piece you see streets and stuff like that and you get a whole textured sense of place but like will said it's also like tenements small rooms uh the kind of claustrophobic feel of these people living together or trying to make a life that will not work you may be wondering how did she get to make this movie and she got to make it because it was financed largely by her husband Raphael silver who was a real estate developer and no Hollywood studio wanted to make or even distribute the film because it is a pretty uncompromising movie, at least by Hollywood standards. It's in black and white. The style is meant to evoke photography of the 1890s. I, it starts in a way where you're like, oh, is this like a silent film sequence that is then going to like transition us into the color movie? And it's like, nope, this is just setting the place. And because it's like a dance sequence with no dialogue. And you will live in this place for the rest of the running time. <laughs> it doesn't have huge stars, although Carol Kane turned turned out to be kind of the breakout star of the film. And a huge amount of the film is in Yiddish as well. It's based on a, a classic Yiddish book called Yechel, A Tale of the New York Ghetto by Abraham Kahan. And this movie actually ended up being something of a financial success. Raphael Silver, her husband, self-distributed the film. He sold some foreign rights, but it ended up making $5 million and Carol Kane got an Oscar nomination. As a first picture, it is so uncompromising. There is no indication that anything was done for kind of commercial reasons. Like, any producer would have told her, you cannot shoot this movie mostly in Yiddish, <laughs> like subtitled Yiddish. That is not going to go through. Or there needs to be, you know, a clearer happy ending at uh, in the finale. Because like all of, you know, these early films, it's all about like a complicated relationship and what that means. And Carol Kane, who here it's all about her gaining some kind of agency and identity as newly arrived immigrants in America. And and ones that have to struggle with the idea uh, with the idea of what does it mean to be Jewish in this place? Do you uh, put all that stuff behind, take new names, and move forward, or do you kind of? have a mix of both. So Carol Kane doesn't appear for the first 10 or 20 minutes. The first character we be we become acquainted with, his original name is Yankel. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he's played by Stephen Keats. He's a Russian Jewish emigre to America who comes to New York well before his wife does. He's very eager and excited to assimilate, become a real American. He has a new Anglicanized name of Jake, and he also becomes engaged in an affair with a somewhat glamorous dancer named Mamie. I think it's really smart from a script perspective that the film, if you didn't know any better, uh, makes you assume this is the main character. You will be following his foibles and his issues. And then when Carol Kane comes in, it's like, oh no, this guy is crap. I mean, he's a bad man. He's abusive. And the story is actually about Carol Kane. And it does like a swerve and about how these stories usually play out. Like, oh, it'll be about them together, kind of, you know, finding their own place. Nope. It's about her finding her own path 
beyond the one that she thought was going to be coming to America. Yeah, and the ending is quite moving because without giving too much away, it presents two different versions of assimilation, two different versions of what it means to be a Jewish emigre in America. We mentioned earlier how kind of textured and lived in the depiction of Jewish life in the period is, and there are a fair number of kind of low-key powerful scenes uh, like the one at Ellis Island where uh, Carol Kane first arrives and there's a somewhat suspenseful scene. They're like, where's your marriage papers? You realize <laughs> like really how hard it was. Like like that guy sitting there has so much power in this situation. She could have to just go on, like imagine the fucking boat ride it took to get over there. And then we hardly ever see New York beyond this street. It's as if they come from the old world and then they go to an attic. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that we fixed all those immigration issues and that doesn't happen to people at all anymore. I already feel myself liking Joan Micklin Silver more as we go along. (laughs) I'm winning you over. I mean, did you watch Between the Lines? I did watch Between the Lines and uh, I'm interested to talk about this one too because I, I enjoyed Between the Lines. Uh, This is, I guess, the next movie she made from 1977, and it feels much more like kind of a conventional Hollywood movie. But it's very autobiographical based on her own experiences. As well as the experiences of Fred Barron, who is the screenwriter and worked at a Boston alt-weekly in the 1960s. The alt-weekly is called the Bayback Mainline. It's in Boston. It's quite a bit like the Village Voice. It's the Village Voice. (laughs) That's all it is. You know, it rose to prominence during the counterculture of the 60s. Now it's the end of the 70s. It's facing a bit of an identity crisis as the winds of culture are shifting. And it's just been sold to a bigger corporation and the independent spirit is at threat. But I think the really clever move of the movie is... The independent spirit is already running on films, right? Yeah, I think that's what I found really interesting about the film is that, you know, if you wrote this on a piece of paper and gave it to someone, they're like, oh, okay, I get it. It's like big business is coming in. They're changing this little, you know, rough and tumble alt weekly. But everybody working there already from frame one is like, eh, I don't really have it anymore. I don't really want to be doing this. So the grand poobah of the paper, the big journalist, is Harry, played by John Hurd. And uh, he used to be a big investigative reporter, but now he's spinning his wheels. He's writing culture journalism. He doesn't really have it anymore. Doesn't it hurt, though, when he's like, we did that big expose on senior homes and they said they were going to change and... Uh, A friend who works there said it hasn't. If anything, it's only gotten worse. Yeah, and, you know, he still carries with him this reputation. Everybody at the paper still says he's the best writer at the paper. Later on, when management wants to have him fired, you know, the the editor of the paper says, I can't do that. He's he's the soul of the paper. But but is he really anymore? No, he's not, because he's not doing anything anymore other than feeling bad for himself. If anything, the new soul of the paper is this younger, more eager reporter played by Bruno Kirby. Uh, who's who's actually doing some exciting investigative work. Meanwhile, there are a bunch of other characters who kind of present um, different versions of this dilemma. Like there's the Stephen Collins character who's writing a book on the death of the counterculture, and he was never really part of it. <laughs> and, you know, he's got a girlfriend played by Gwen Wells from Nashville, and she's having some ennui of her own. She just wants to sing that one song. <laughs> She wants to be on K- on stage with Carol Ann or whatever it was. Mm. Yeah. yeah, she's having some ennui herself because her future seems so tied into what her boyfriend is going to do, especially when he sells a book contract and he's like, all right, we're moving to New York. And you get the sense that like, did he talk to her about it? Did he not? But this film, like 
there's no easy answers for any of the characters. And it essentially ends in a way where it's like, well, you know, life is another day. We've made decisions. Some of them that are clearly wrong and the characters know they're wrong, but they're going to keep going with it because it's more comfortable and doing something different would be more challenging. Oh, also Jeff Goldblum is in this movie as the music critic. Uh, and is Jeff Goldblumiest. What can I say? A star is born. <laughs> yeah. like he's, he's right there. So, you know, the movie is incredibly prescient about the decline of alt-weeklies because, I mean, when it was made, every city had an alt-weekly. Many cities had more than one alt-weekly. And yet this movie's already predicting, like, like wh- whichever ones still remain right now are, are really facing this. Are there any? <laughs> well, we have Now Magazine in Now Toronto. Magazine's still um, kicking? I thought that bit the... Uh, oh, because they did get bought out by some big organization, didn't they? So. They're still very active online as well. But I think Now Magazine, for instance, like... The people who bought that say we want to reorient our our focus onto esports and cannabis <laughs> or something like Which that. Which is exactly what's what gets said in this movie, essentially. We're like, you know, we've read every issue, we love it, but we just want to refocus on different things. Or do you remember? Do you remember the grid in Toronto? Yes, I do remember the grid. Yeah, because that used to be iWeekly, and it got taken over and. I remember the marketing line on it was something like, well, we want to have a younger, hipper Toronto life. And the, the minute you <laughs> oh, hear that, you're God. like, don't we already have Toronto life? Yeah. And it's not hip. I mean, it's not young either. It's because you can't you can't have that. It doesn't exist. It, well, another thing that the movie gets right is is there is like a problem of uh, commerce versus I don't know if art is the right word, but principles versus commerce. And and it is an unavoidable problem. And then when you start having too many ad men dictating the uh, the philosophy of the paper, uh, you know, the balance gets off. But you seem to be couching all of this praise with like, eh, but did you not find it that like dramatically compelling? Um, I guess I have to admit that I didn't. And I'm not quite sure why that is, because as I'm talking about it, it's like, I, I, I love the sound of this movie. I even I even liked watching it, you know? It's a film, I think, with no victories. And there are also really no protagonists. Everyone is bad in a different way. Except for maybe the young cub reporter who is ignorant in doing his job and has to be saved because he's going to get hurt. There's not a lot of forward momentum here. It's, it's I guess, what you might call a hangout movie. Well, it's a movie about winding down. Like, this is the last gasp of what these people are doing. The only hint that you get is, like, at one point they look at a photo and they're like, remember when it used to be good and we used to do things and go to protests and, and stuff? And, like, John Hurd, as an actor, this is a man who, like, I can imagine having been charismatic at one point, and yet here he is, and he's not that charismatic. Well, I think that John Hurd is like a great silver protagonist because you look at him and you go, oh, you know, he should be charming and fun. But in the narrative she puts him in, he is kind of, oh, once I get to know that person, he's not that anymore. Like, this is who he really is. Kind of lame. And the shine that you may have seen when you uh, met him like the first time is gone by the time these movies play out, which I think could take us into chilly scenes of winter, which I think is other than crossing Delancey. When people talk about her as a director, they say this is their favorite movie that she made. And this is another one that left me a little bit cold. Hey, oh, well, (laughs) although I think clearly it's to some extent supposed to leave you a little bit cold. Oh, yeah. It is about the relationship between John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurt. Uh, which is a romance that lasts all of two months. And then she moves on, gets back with her old husband, and he can't let it go. And it becomes a a bit of a stalker situation. But you uh, kind of explained it in a way that the movie does not deliver you this information that quickly. 
essentially it puts you on the side of John Hurd because he's talking to the camera. He's like, hey, this is how I met Laura. And you think it's like Annie Hall. You, you open it thinking it's going to be Annie yeah, Hall. Yeah, Annie Hall, 500 Days of Summer, except it's like Annie Hall if the whimsy of it was missing. So you're in a lot of hallways. The whole film takes place during winter in the flashbacks and the present. And it's just kind of miserable. The only real kind of playfulness is the time shifting and the narration. But once you see it play out, you're like, oh, John Hurd is not okay. Like he's held on to this two months relationship for a year and is like stalking her in his car. It's all he can think about. He is a guy that in high school would have been so charming. He could have taken over the world. And as he says himself, he has a dead end job where he writes reports about other reports. Then he hands off to someone else. He doesn't really know what he does, but he's been promoted twice. So he must have been doing it well. Yeah. And Chilly Scenes of Winter is a good title because you're right. There's not a lot here to look at just just visually. I mean, the movie looks as it should. But it's not that pleasant to look at. But I think that is like a conscious choice. Like, I've heard people talk about Silver as a kind of visually flat director. I don't think that is true. I think that if you look at her blocking and the way things play out, she's very conscious about the effect that it has. But she's making a choice that, like, there's no warmth here. <laughs> like, even the relationship that you see between uh, John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurt is one that you know, in small moments, it was fun, but like, that's all he can focus on. Like the entirety of it, there wasn't really that much there. And that's interesting. You should say that because I was struck by the conspicuous lack of chemistry between these two actors, Mm. which I guess is also intentional. Well, when you see them together, their scenes last, what, like uh, maybe a minute, two minutes in those flashbacks where it's like, oh, remember that time I bought you the chair? Because by like scene three, they're already having fights. Like the character played by Mary Beth Hurt She is getting out of a relationship and John Hurd like is the first one that she has and she's already kind of all over the place from the get go and he's building an image of what she is in his mind. He's fallen head over heels right from the get go. So anything she does beyond that doesn't really matter because he can only focus on this kind of idealized version of someone, which I feel that a lot of people when they go through relationships, they go through where it's like. Oh, if I could just do this, they'd come me back or I do the big gesture. But in this movie, it's pathetic and it's sad, even though you're seeing it all through his prism of like, he is narrating this. He's taking you through all of these. Okay, I'm really sold now. And now we're going to move on. (laughs) Now we're going to move on to the one that is the most pleasant movie. Before we move on, though, did you know this film had a completely different ending? No, I didn't. What was the other ending? So essentially, the movie was released as Head Over Heels. And it has an insane poster with like John Hurd's cartoony face. And I think like wipers, he's wearing sunglasses and wipers are going off in them. And they tried to sell it as like a big romantic comedy. And in the uh, original version that was really theatrically, they get back together at the end. And she shows up and she's like, I love you. I love you. I love you. Which is something that John Hurd tells to her in a, the most pathetic scene in the movie. Oh my God. And the film plays out like happy and they hug and it's like, da, 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 da. and that's how the film ended. But uh, Silver kept showing the movie to people and critics and she got the original version, which just ends earlier released. I, th- I don't know if it got re-released, but it definitely that's what ended up on VHS and stuff like that. God, that's appalling. The, uh, the other version. Well, the movie, like as a romantic comedy, you can imagine there being one more beat because the film ends with John Hurd. He's back at work. 
And he's like, listen, I have to move on. It still hurts. You see him running really passionately. And then he just stops. There's a freeze frame and it ends exactly where it should end. That's where the book ends. There is no Annie Hall style like, oh, you know, we went over our differences and we can move on with our lives. It's like, that's not how it works in real life. It's like someone's trying to be nice. And eventually they just have to slam the door in the other person's face. And yep, life goes on. Okay, I'm sold. Now we're going to move on to what is probably the most conventional and the most pleasant of the four movies that we watched. Uh, and is also probably a little less interesting than the other ones, uh, but it hits, it hits the right beats. It is Crossing Delancey from 1988. Amy Irving stars in this one as an employee at a venerable New York City bookstore. She's a single gal in the big city navigating life and love. And she comes from a working-class Jewish background in the Lower East Side, which she is very keen to divest herself of. The crossing of Delancey Street is the crossing of uh, socioeconomic boundaries. I would say probably the biggest weakness of this movie is that uh, Amy Irving herself is a bit of a cipher. That Silver seems to be interested in all the characters that surround her, especially like her Jewish grandmother, um, her friends, the people that she works with, more than Irving herself, who doesn't really have that much agency, that she's kind of being dragged along into this scenario against her will. And the film just makes a decision, like a lot of romantic comedies do, which is like, which uh, man do you choose? Do you choose the charming... Is he Dutch? Because like, he speaks French at one point. He pl he's played by Jerome Cr and he's a famous and brooding author. Or do you pick the charming pickle seller played by everyone's favorite friend of Jim Carrey in the mask, Peter Rygert? Oh, that's who that was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I knew he looked familiar. And so like this film, I think that the reason it works so well for me is that it feels so textured and detailed. I mean, the studio didn't want to release it because they thought it was too ethnic. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of the world that Amy Irving lives in, and it never, like, pulls any punches or tries to make it fanciful. Like, Well, there's a scene where she goes to a bris, for example. But you get a lot of details in that scene, like the child's father is not married with the mother, that uh, her friends all have different lives as well. They were besties in high school, but now they're going all in different directions. Or that Amy Irving works at a bookstore, but and she should be happy. She has a great life, but... At the same time, she is not happy and she is still allowed to have a relationship with a man, but they're not dating. And I don't think the film ever makes any judgment of that either, which most pictures usually would. I did like this movie, though. I liked that New York Jewish texture that it has. It feels very convincing and lived in. I liked all of the characters and I liked all their relationships. I found Amy Irving pretty charming. Uh, Peter Rygert, you know, I can kind of take or leave him, but, you know, he's, he's, he's fine. I mean, yeah, it's a charming movie. And uh, it makes sense why it would be as fondly remembered as it is because it's I would say it's also not a very sentimental movie I mean it hits all of those kind of romantic comedy beats but in that kind of low-key way that Silver has gone through throughout her filmography up until there there's no like sweeping musical score or any like real tug at your heartstring kind of stuff it's more of a like this is how it plays out it's fairly low-key there's no career or life-ending decisions that are made it's just a woman has to pick you know who she wants to date in her life. Now, she made a couple of other films after this. Uh, romantic comedies, A Fish in the Bathtub is one of them. Big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even. Uh, I know that uh, some of these movies have their fans, but uh, clearly 
after crossing Delancey, there's a sense that it's like the beginning of the end. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass, but that's what it seems to me. Oh, well, I think that she had like uh, two hits against her in Hollywood. One, she was a woman. Two, she was an older woman. So like you see a lot of uh, women filmmakers, especially directors, after like a hit, they'll maybe have one more picture after. And if that one is not a hit, because right after Crossing Delancey, she made Loverboy with uh, Patrick Dempsey, which I haven't seen. But, um, you know, isn't very, very well regarded. And then she was banished to made for TV land, which you see like a lot of female filmmakers. That's where they end up. And, you know, made for TV land is tough because it's all about just delivering the product. And, you know, you don't really have that much of a voice on it. As predicted at the start of the episode, I am leaving this discussion with a greater appreciation of Joan Micklin Silver. And uh, hopefully in a year or two, I'll watch some of these movies again and I'll pretend that I always thought they were five star movies. <laughs> there you go. Hey, they don't need to be five star movies, but, <laughs> you know, they can still be good and have their flaws. And she is a director, though, that, you know, until I heard somebody talk about Chili Scenes of Winter, I had never even heard her name. And it took somebody on a podcast, I think in this case it was Bill Ackerman, uh, who appeared on a podcast, who does the Great Supporting Characters pod, saying it was his favorite film for me to go, oh, okay, I need to check this out. So she's been under the radar for a very long time, but I think these films over the years, especially if they get like better Blu-ray releases, they'll get talked in the same way that kind of like Elaine May's films get talked now. <laughs> like you still get a sense that people are like, I can't believe they're letting me do this about Elaine May. But she's also one of those filmmakers that I think she's in the mainstream of you know, cinephile discussions, which wasn't the case many years ago. Well, Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from James Waters. And he's actually the fellow that mentioned uh, Joan Micklin Silver in a previous email and asked us to do her for an episode. But he also mentions here in this new letter I tend not to take director writer's desk too much to heart, but were there any of late that affected you more than usual? Or are there any older filmmakers who you hope will get one last hurrah as they enter their twilight years? I, for one, am hoping that we can get one last Elaine May film. We used to joke a lot when we started this podcast of what you would do when Jerry Lewis died, and then he died while we were doing the podcast. Yeah, I was pretty sad about that. I mean, the answer, like, are there filmmakers who I want to have one last hurrah before they die? I mean, that is basically like all of my favorite filmmakers or any filmmaker I like. Every actor, every writer, just one last hurrah. I'm just picking a name out of a hat, but like take Paul Verhoeven, okay? He's 80 years old now, and he's not somebody who's been on like any sort of creative decline. Elle was a very great movie, but like when you when you get to that age, you just you just want to think, can there be one more? Or hey, you know, he has one coming out, right? A nun movie. I, I can't wait for it. And you know, there are some people who like I've basically given up hope on. But wouldn't it be nice to get one more good Terry Gilliam movie? That's not going to happen. That's like saying oh, I, I wish you could get one more Dario Argento film. I know, but it's like those people don't exist anymore. Like time and just aging has turned them into a different person than the movies that we loved. I, I mean, you know what? I'm happy that we got like a dumb fun John Woo movie before he seemingly retired. I hear he's very sick, but like Manhunt was great. And that was like one last hurrah. Like he doesn't need to give us any more, anything more. And as to who I will be sad when they die. I mean, also literally everyone like, and, and a lot of it has to do not so much with uh, what a shame it will be that we won't be getting new work from them anymore. But like when Jean-Luc Godard dies or when Clint Eastwood dies, it will feel like the end of an yeah, era. But I think that when I hear those people die, like it's like, man, they had a long run. <laughs> Like the, 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 
specifically those two names that you mentioned, it's not like they missed out on any chances or anything like that or were not able to do what they wanted to do. I mean, I'm going to be shocked if Clint Eastwood's not like, I put a bunch of GoPros at my funeral. It's going to be my last movie. Here's the shot list. One take. Thing is, I think Clint Eastwood, for example, is still doing some interesting stuff. Like, I thought Richard Jewell was really good. Uh, the Mule was really good. Obviously, a little movie called The 1517 to Paris. Very exciting stuff. Man, this is a Clint Eastwood podcast. We end on him every episode these days. Because he's the last good filmmaker. Yeah, uh, 1517 to Paris. It's a movie that could only be made by an old guy. Like, who's like, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Well, let's just do this. Why not? Who's going to stop me? Exactly. And this is what we would be missing out on if he died. So in addition, in addition to being like a Titanic figure who his death will mark the end of an era. I don't know. I'm just kind of curious what crazy stuff he still has in store. He's still doing stuff, you know? Can you imagine if like James Cameron dies in a ridiculous accident and none of those Avatar oh, movies hilarious. <laughs> I just get sad when young filmmakers die. I I'm trying to think of if there was like one recently that I'm like, oh, they never like got to that next level of what they could have done. And I'm sure it'll come to me after this podcast. Well, he's ends. not a he's not a director. But I mean, when Philip Seymour Hoffman died, it was very sad because, yeah, you know, he's, he seemed to be graduating to a whole new level of work with the master and other movies like that. I mean, somebody like the Quebecois director, Jean-Claude Lazon, he only got to make like two movies before he passed away in a helicopter accident. And like, that's a bummer, but I, I can't be sad about it because I'm looking retrospectively on it. Like nothing has really hit me recently of like, Oh man, that's, that's, you know, this filmmaker, they didn't get that last shot. Like even Elaine May, whatever movie she makes now, it's not going to be like a previous film. So I'm curious. Didn't they announce that she was going to do one recently? Yeah, Dakota Johnson is attached to a movie. But man, Elaine mm. May is like 88 years old. Let her rest. <laughs> like, let her have a break. If she can pull it together, I would love to see it. But I don't know. I'm not setting my watch we on it. We will definitely see that. I can guarantee you of that. How much time before there's an Ishtar uh, Criterion edition? A year, maybe? One of the things I'm really ashamed of on this podcast is in a, an early episode, we did Elaine May, and I was talking on that episode about how I didn't get Ishtar. I didn't like it at all. And since then, I've seen Ishtar with an audience, and it just completely opened up for me. Like, I, I found it funny pretty much all the way through when I saw it with an audience. Well, I'm not going to say that. I still stick to my regular position that funny at the beginning, not that funny when they get um, to their location. I love all of the them being singers part, with all the Paul Williams songs and stuff. Obviously, it peaks at the start. When I saw it with an audience, still a lot of funny stuff after so, that. So um, we have another letter here from Tony Marshall, and he goes, hey, guys, thanks for introducing me. I don't know why I did like a voice. <laughs> hey, guys. And we have a new character on the podcast. Letter writer. Thanks for introducing me to films and filmmakers I, as a film student, may have never been introduced to. You know, uh, I think that we should just have our own film school. That's pretty much what, uh, you know, everyone's been telling us, right? We have it. It's the podcast. <laughs> no, send us. We need a building. Send us your Oh, we, uh, we need money. Yes, yeah, yes. Where we will just do the podcast once a week and that will be the class and that will be it. It will only be 30 minutes long. I will grade no papers. And we get tenure so they can never fire us. Oh yeah, we're the deans of this uh, university. <laughs> so the letter continues. Thank you for giving me an interest in horror films, which I avoided through my whole teen years. But I have to ask, how do you guys watch pornography? I am trying to watch as much of what you suggest as possible, but I just can't get the courage to sit and watch Radley Metzger, Wakefield Pool, etc. How do you do it? Do you watch it entirely to watch it like any other movie? Are you masturbating to them in the lead up to the podcast? Right before the podcast starts. 
Do you finish and then just sit and watch the rest of the film? Sorry for this being crude, but I just can't get my head around on how you go about watching it for the podcast, especially stuff you yourself are not sexually turned on by. P.S. Me and my classmates have been doing film nights, and I have used your podcast for every screen suggestion. If Footmen Tire You, Brain Damage, and Detour all went down great, but every Jerry Lewis film I put up has been voted down, and we haven't even gotten past the posters. If you're curious what Gen Z's tastes are, sincerely, Tony Marshall. Mm, lots to chew on on this letter. Yeah, interesting to hear. Let's talk about Jerry Lewis. Don't suggest Jerry Lewis for your friends. Even if you get them to watch it, they will not enjoy it from the comfort of each of your own homes. Well, I mean, I, I do think it helps to have like a broken brain to appreciate Jerry Lewis. It helps to be kind of like alienated from comedy. Yeah, cracking up is a masterpiece. It's all about Jerry Lewis's in its purest form without... Justin, first you disrespect Clint, and now you disrespect cracking up. Uh, I, I I may have to leave the podcast. Anyway, um, yeah, would you have any suggestion of what Jerry Lewis you'd recommend? man for like a film group to watch the ladies man because the nutty professor like it might win on points but it's too conventional here's how it go about it tell your friends and this never works but be like listen you're probably not gonna laugh that much but just look at how the movie is made and that's what you want to absorb when you watch this movie you know a lot of like films like especially jerry lewis you you can get into it you can find them funny but a lot of people won't but there's still stuff to appreciate there. If you want to get them to watch one, that's how you would do it. And I agree with Will. Ladies Man is the big, like, technical showy film. Be like, Wes Anderson was inspired by this in, like, that cut-up set. And that's how you could get people to watch that. Now, with pornography, what what do you do when you're watching, uh, when we occasionally tackle porn movies on the show? How do you approach it? You know, sometimes I will uh, speed through some of the sex scenes. Sometimes I'll just sit there and watch them all. But yeah, that's pretty much it. I don't think there's any uh, secret here. But I think what the letter writing is getting to is that it, it almost feels like there's still something like taboo about watching it, not for like uh, self-stimulating pleasure. Yeah, I yeah, definitely. And I would just say to try your best to get over that. Um, or or if you can't, then don't don't watch them. That's fine. Yeah, I think that and we've talked about this a little bit before. What interests us when we talk about pornography is like the people that made it and aesthetically what the film is trying to say, or even people trying to make a real movie with the meager resources and within the confines of pornography. I think that most of the filmmakers we've discussed, they've been of that ilk or even someone like Sean Costello of none of his films are great art but we're fascinated how he's able to do something with so little and how he made so much of it the ones that we're talking about from the 70s and 80s it's not like clips on Pornhub or something they are movies with stories that have a, a beginning a middle and an end and sort of watch it like you might watch this sounds ridiculous but like you might watch a Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers musical the sex scenes are like dance sequences basically and there's plot that ties them together <laughs> I would say it's almost the opposite for us is that like the plot is the sex scenes when we watch it and the dance numbers is everything in between yeah like we've generally been interested in the filmmakers like Radley Metzger yeah who like try to make it as much like a real movie as possible so I mean if you follow the ones that we're recommending you will at least have something resembling a real movie to hang your hat on. And if you want to start somewhere, Radley Metzger is a great place to do it because he makes softcore movies. So you can start there and then kind of work your way down. Yeah, like watch Camille 2000 or The Licorice Quartet. Or you could even just do The Cat and the Canary, which is a horror film that Radley Metzger made, like a horror comedy kind of thing. No porn scenes there, but his personality is still, 
diluted. And if something there interests you, then you can move into like the other stuff. I mean, I, I do feel like starting like opening of Misty Beethoven. While that is a real movie, it is still kind of rough and the sex scenes are very long. So, you know, if you don't have any experience that that can feel weird. Have me and you watched pornography together? I feel like we have like some classic stuff, but I can't remember what I it was. I genuinely don't think we have. I think that might be a little too awkward. The, the letter writer asks uh, if we ever masturbate during them. And uh, I think that's a very personal question. I can definitely say I never have with any of the movies that I've watched here. But if you're like Will and you have, there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that means they're good. Four stars if we could rate them on Letterboxd. That's one of the things that I'm like, ugh, that like they take pornography down. Are children using this Letterboxd website? I don't think so. That's so fucking prudish. I don't know. I don't like it. Especially for directors like Roger Watkins or Ed Wood, who like worked in both mainstream and pornography. Or like Gary Graver. <laughs> Gary Graver. Perfect example. Yeah. And I don't buy them being like, well, it's going to be flooded with this stuff. And it's like, no, it won't. Only like film fans are going to add these movies and they'll only be like the really big ones. Well, what they should do, even if it is flooded with that stuff, do it the way that IMDb does it, where like you can't really search it in the main search function. But if you click the name of someone, then you can see them all. Exactly. So thank you again for your letter. If someone would like to ask us a question, have a comment, you can do so at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com what are we doing on our patreon this week will well this week on the patreon we got caught between the moon and new york city and decided that the best thing to do was fall in love we are talking about the 1981 smash hit now forgotten arthur starring dudley moore and and we're talking about it because it is one of those forgotten blockbusters and we wanted to see if a movie about a lovable drunken billionaire would hold up to modern scrutiny. And Will has a very funny personal connection to it. Okay, very funny is probably stretching it, but <laughs> uh, a personal connection to it. So you can listen to that by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema club and joining up for $5 a month. The chat room or discord is hopping and you get our whole back catalog of oh man, too many episodes. I think we're coming up to 200 Patreon episodes soon so oh, goodness anyway a lot a lot of value for your buck there so what are we going to do on the podcast next week oh next week this is a topic that will brought to the table and it is the waynes brothers that's right sean marlin keenan ivory damon we are exploring their filmography we're of course going to look at scary movie we will also look at the seminal white chicks and i think we're also going to look at i'm going to get you sucker as well you know what we're gonna to have to watch white chicks and little man there's no oh, way around of it. course how could i forget <laughs> little man and uh, th this was sparked by the fact that i watched the recent uh, marlon wayans movie 50 shades of black and uh, i gotta say i laughed did you i was shocked that, uh, that you would laugh at that kind of spoof movie. Uh, now I have to watch Fifty Shades of Black if only to start the episode with, what were you thinking, Will? It, wouldn't it be so funny if it turns out that you're the one who hates the spoof movie more than me for once? I mean, when I was a child, scary movie, hilarious. But I have watched the first scary movie since then. Mm, not hilarious. Well, anyway, the Wayans brothers have a vast filmography. I mean, we're big fans of Damon Wayans in Spike Lee's Bamboozled. And I grew up watching In Living Color on the Comedy Network. So uh, I'm I'm very interested. I and White Chicks looks like it could be funny. So let's do this. I'm surprised that you haven't seen White Chicks or Little Man. I was too much of a snob when they came out. Mm, okay. I mean, I've never seen them either, but I will be checking them out. I did see Don't Be a Menace uh, to South Central while drinking your your juice in the hood and my review i checked was one and a half stars and <laughs> all i wrote was 
40% breakdancing granny. <laughs> Sounds good to me. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin. I'm Clue. Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Joe Probus, David Annandale, Bryce Jones, and Chris. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. And as per my usual reminder, I do another podcast called the Bay Street Video Podcast, where I and Mark Hansen, the product manager at Bay Street Video, goes through all of the new Blu-rays and DVDs that are released every week. You can check that out by just searching Bay Street Video and whatever you like to use to search. And I also have a new podcast with Peter Koplowski, the programmer at Midnight Madness, and Matthew Kumar, my co-host from the Loose Cannons podcast. And this new podcast is called the Star Wars Puncast, where Peter, a Star Wars superfan, forces me and Matthew to watch the Clone Wars series. That one's really fun. It's a real kind of riffing podcast as opposed to a history one. And it's just like three friends just sitting around chatting and having fun with something that one of them really loves and the other two are kind of baffled at at this point in time. And of course, Will Sloan has the Michael and Us podcast, which he co-hosts with Luke Savage. So a lot of ways to listen to me and Will multiple times a week. So with that in mind, we now return you to your regular schedule programming. My pals and I have been having kind of a January schlock movie club, and that's how I watched Fifty Shades of Black, which I ended up being pleasantly surprised by. And last week we watched, uh, this is a virtual movie club, by the way, just a way to stay sane in quarantine. I mean, we are in Toronto, Canada that is now on full lockdown. And if you go out, you will be ticketed by cops. But anyway, last week we watched Alone in the Dark by Uwe Boll. And I remember when this came out, this was kind of the movie that launched, I think, Uwe Boll to infamy. It was the one that turned him into the modern Ed Wood. It came out in early 2005 and was basically just greeted as like, this is an atrocity. Uh, you've seen it, right? Oh, I own not only Alone in the Dark, but the baffling existence of the Alone in the Dark director's cut DVD. Wow. I own both. And they are. What an awful movie. There is nothing redeeming about this motion picture. As I was watching it, I felt that if it were just a sci-fi channel original, nobody would have noticed no, it. not at all. Yeah. But imagine seeing that movie in a theater. Oh, I can only imagine. It starts with the longest uh, opening crawl ever that tells you the entire movie. But it's also very hard to retain. <laughs> to understand, yes, because there's so much text. But Christian Slater is in there, you know, at peak cashing it in mode, playing kind of a vampire hunter guy. I mean, there's a real uh, Jack Nicholson off in this because isn't it Christian Slater and Stephen Dorff? The scenes where they're together, I love it. Chewing the scenery, it's like De Niro and Pacino. I'm seeing double for Jack Nicholson's. <laughs> and also, of course, it has Tara Reid as... Um, what is she, a professor or something like that? Oh, Uwe Boll <laughs> hates Tara Reid. He uh, infamously has a commentary track where he's like, I, I tried to make her look smart by putting glasses on her. Did not work. I think that's rather ungentlemanly of Mr. Oh, yeah. Bull is uh, not a nice man. Yeah, not, not a nice man at also, all. Also, not a very good filmmaker. No, I, I, you know, when he was at his peak, when he was around all the time, he always cut such a like surly presence he was always he was always like i don't understand it why is it that uh, uh michael bay gets to make this shit movie and i have to make movie with dominic purcell or you know whatever and it's like well I hate to break it to you buddy but michael bay's better than you uh, uvi bowl is almost scientific in making his movies as dreary and not fun as possible <laughs>
Like you could explain, like, I remember I saw Alone in the Dark. I hated it. And I watched it a few years ago and I was like, oh, I, you know, there should be some fun stuff in this. I could barely make it to the end. I was dying. I'm like, this is so dull (laughs) i did love the final scene that sat after the apocalypse in vancouver because vancouver is one of those cities that like doesn't look like a real city (laughs) like a backlot somewhere Yeah, exactly and and so i thought uve bull very accidentally made good use of the otherworldly quality of the city and then he rips off the ending of the evil dead with the camera flying in christian slater's mouth totally gratuitously makes no sense it makes no the whole movie makes no sense it's based on a video game and has nothing to do with that video game but do you know it was successful enough to warrant a sequel a dtv sequel alone in the dark did he did uve direct it Mm -mm. it was directed by the screenwriters of the film oh my god imagine picking up Uwe Boll's table scraps. I mean, I interviewed the screenwriter of Alone in the Dark for like some Winnipeg film group thing. And we chatted about it because he had also written the F word. What, the Daniel Radcliffe, Zoe Kazan movie? Yeah. And he had had some experience doing, you know, stuff with them. I should ask him if, uh, I wonder if I saw his email asking for an interview because he had some really good stories of like being on set and trying to do rewrites and then being like, Oh, thanks for the rewrite. We can't do this. We're going to shoot what we originally had. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, that's amazing that he made both those movies. Yeah, what a life. 